As we dive in this morning to um, the topic of what opportunity wears, uh, let me ask, how many engineers do we have in the room, and maybe even online or upstairs in our uh, venue there, how many um, engineers are there? Could you just wave at me real briefly? Engineers in the room. Okay, I see at least three or four. There are probably some. I see you guys at home, right? I'm just kidding. I don't really. Uh, but we've got a number of engineers. I want to just say that we're going to try to reverse engineer a verse today. We're going to look at a singular verse, and then we're going to work our way backward. We're going to kind of unpack what makes this verse such a beautifully um, wonderful opportunity. I think that's what reverse engineering is. It's when you take something, disassemble it, look at it, and say, how did we get here? So that's what we're doing today. We're going to reverse engineer Acts 9.31. Here it is. Take your Bibles, open it. It's on the screen behind you, but just look at Acts 9.31 with me for a moment. And we're going to answer this question beginning in this verse and working our way backward. What does opportunity wear? So here's the verse, Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the um, characteristics, this is the description of the church, capital C, probably multiple faith communities in these regions. He just singularly calls it the church. So maybe they were in different homes. Maybe they were meeting in different large group gatherings in Jerusalem. But we know they met in Solomon's porch uh, pretty regularly as well as in their homes. So whatever Luke had in mind here in these different communities, different regions, the church and all of their different meeting formats, it says here, they had peace. They were being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it multiplied. In fact, could you just read that verse with me? Could we just read this wonderful opportunity, this description of a church that you would love to be part of, wouldn't you? It's like, man, who wouldn't want to be part of that? Can you read it with me together? So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. Every pastor, every member, they'd love to be part of that. Who wouldn't? It's like, man, give me that opportunity. And yet I want to ask you a question. How did they get that opportunity? What brought Acts 9.31 about? Well, let's reverse engineer what went before it. And let's find out. Now I'm going to do some speed walking with you. So start at Acts 2.41 and track with me through a set of circumstances that brought about Acts 9.31. Let's disassemble that verse, not just textually in a moment with what it contains, but what went before it. And we'll start at Acts 2.41, which is the very first message at the very first gathering of the church. And here's what happened at the end of Acts 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So to those initial 120 that met in the upper room, the Holy Spirit fell. They spoke in languages that were known throughout the whole world, the gift of tongues. At the end of the day, 3,000 folks said, we're in. They believed and they were baptized. 
But let's move on to chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, because this is the first of good news, but it was followed by some difficult news. As you know, they kept preaching the word. They healed a lame man. They were a meeting in, the, in Solomon's porch. Peter preached, Peter preached again in the end of chapter 3. But eventually, verse 1 of chapter 4 says this, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. That's some difficult news there. On the heels of a great victory, here's a tough difficulty. They arrested some of the people. But look at verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So you're at at least 8,000 people in these first few days and weeks. Wow. But it didn't come through an easy set of circumstances. It came through some arrest as well, didn't it? So you had a positive, then you have kind of a negative. Look at 431. Here's another positive. They, were, they let them out of jail. They go back together. And they just the first thing they did was pray. The Bible says in 431 that when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says here, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So more folks were added. They continued to preach and proclaim and witness, even in the middle of all their difficulty. Well... In the middle of all this growth and excitement, uh, there were a couple of people who thought they would capitalize on it and increase their image without actually doing the work. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. So they lied to the church and to the Holy Spirit. And in the middle of these thousands of folks being gathered to the church, they had two deaths. And they were stark public deaths. Look at 511. It says that upon the uh, heels of, of Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead in the church and their bodies being taken out and buried. It says, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Verses 12 and 13 talk about how very few dared join them. <laughs> so some, some, not only external difficulty in being arrested, but now they've got some internal issues. Man, hey, hear about the church down the road? Man, they, they had two folks die in the middle of the service. I mean, can you imagine that being the word around town about you? We'll go down to 514, though. Though some dare join them, the Bible does say that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. So there was this healthy fear, and yet in the middle of this healthy fear, external difficulty, internal difficulty, people were continuing to come to Christ. Multitudes of both men and women. Well, we're not through with difficulty yet. Look at verses 17 and 18 of this same chapter. It says that upon the hills of this, the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So arrest number two happens. And as you follow the story, look at verses 41 and 42. You'll find that after they were beaten and threatened, they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Do you love that? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They didn't go sue somebody. They didn't go try to protest. They didn't go try to overturn something. They rejoiced that they were able to suffer. They were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Wow. No matter what difficulty came their way, they continued to be about the very first matter of business, preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. Well, as good as that is, it got even harder because 
another internal difficulty arises. Remember, we're looking at 8,000 plus people as part of this faith community. Among them were a number of widows. And in chapter 6, we see that there arose, verse 1, a, a complaint. Notice verse 1, that when the disciples were increasing in number, well, this complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected. So here's another internal frustration, an internal problem we got to deal with. They uh, mobilized and appointed deacons to do it. And the end of the day, look at verse 7. Look at this positive out of this internal uh, difficulty. The word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied. Aren't you seeing a trend here? On the heels of every difficulty, they just stayed faithful to the task, and God did what only God can do. He just grew his church. Of course, as soon as the church continued to grow after this uh, situation here with the deacons, and they solved it, and the apostles could continue to preach and teach, well, they arrested one of those deacons. His name was Stephen. Look at verse 12. It says that they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. This is one of the men who had been a part of solving the widow issue with the distribution of food. Well, they arrested him, and of course, in the course of the trial, um, Peter preaches a fantastic sermon, so much so that it really bothered those who were listening. So look at 758. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. So here's at least death number three, but not for a reason that was judgment from God. Here's death number three that was a martyrdom. And the witnesses laid down their garments and defeated at a, a defeat of a young man named Saul. And so the persecution is getting much more intense now. It's rising. So much so that chapter eight tells us this. That on that day, verse 1, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem arose. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So they stayed behind to help protect what flock was there and to courageously stand for truth. And those who were in the church, they fled. They moved. They found a new place to live. I don't know if they got a realtor, sold their home. I don't know if they abandoned their belongings. I have no idea. But the clear truth is this. That the persecution was so great, most of the church, that would be most of the eight to ten plus thousand people said, we've got to find a new place to live. That's some difficulty. And it was because of their faith in Christ. And yet, look at verse 4 of chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Isn't that good to know? I mean, they just stayed on task, on mission. And here's an example. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. Well, that's good news, but bad news is still on the horizon because verse 1 of chapter 9 says that Saul, who was there at Stephen's death and part of that, it says that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So even though they moved out, the persecution was continuing. And Saul became one of the leaders of making sure he could target Christians. In fact, Look what verse 2 says, that he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul was on a manhunt and a woman hunt. He's trying to find Christians who believe and bring them and imprison them. While he's doing this, the Lord interrupts, intersects his life. And radically saves him. He's on his way to persecute Christians. And God says, oh, hold there, buddy. And you read verses 15 and 16. You see that, that God saves Saul. 
He sends him to this like, we'll call it a hotel for the lack of a better word. He's to stay there three days. He gets a man named Ananias and says, Ananias, go tell Saul what's in store for him. Look at verses 15 and 16 now. He says, tell Saul this, that he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. In other words, preaching Christ to those who've yet to hear. And here's how it's going to happen. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You would think, okay, I'm going I'm to radically save Paul. And then I'll, I'll give him the easy street. But he says, Paul, the church now for, for weeks, months, maybe years, has been under severe difficulty, persecution. I'm going to save you from doing that, but I'm going to give you that instead. And you're going to actually experience persecution, but it'll be for the cause of getting my name to those who've yet to hear. I mean, Paul was given fair notice, wasn't he? Hey, Paul, the life ahead for you, man, it's going to be a life of suffering. Look at verse 23. This played out within days and weeks of Paul's conversion. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, speaking of Saul, because he was teaching and preaching and testifying about Christ. So the Jews are after him. Look down at verse 29. He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, and so they were seeking to kill him. I mean, Paul didn't have very, he had very few friends. In fact, when he came to Jerusalem later, in the same time frame, the church was afraid of him. This is probably a, you know, like an, a cover or an instigator. He may be someone who's trying to get in, but he's really not one of us. You see what's happening? That verse 31 is on the heels of a progression of difficulty. We just tracked it. We just reverse engineered the great opportunity of verse 31. That the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, which by the way, those three regions, it's the result of Acts 8, 1. The great persecution. That's how the church multiplied and planted. It had to, Right? But here, of course, they had some peace, it says. And I'll say more about this in a minute. They were being built up. They were multiplying. But none of 31, none of 31 happens if 2 through 8 isn't in there, which is an incredible progression of difficulty after difficulty, both externally and internally. And what I want you to see this morning is that opportunity, opportunity, Where's the close of difficulty? Now, I'll say more about it in a minute. Just hang on to that thought, okay? Because it's not only true, it's not only true corporately, it's true individually. The last kind of character in this, at least, reverse engineering was the Apostle Paul. And what was he told in 9, 15, and 16? Hey, what's ahead for you, Paul, is a life of suffering. But I'm doing that for the sake of those who've yet to hear. And if you go to Romans chapter 16, in fact, let me read you this verse. If you go to Romans 16, verse 27, Paul says this as he closes out this letter to the Romans near the end of his life. He says this, that the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, it has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writing, that's a reference to the Old Testament, which is what Paul would preach in the synagogues. He would argue that, the, that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. He says here that through the prophetic writings, it has been made known to all nations. And Paul is probably the key player in getting the gospel to the known world. And how did it occur? Through a life of suffering. So this, this principle is not only true collectively for the church, that our opportunities are always dressed in difficulty. It's true for us personally. 
that your opportunities are always dressed in difficulty. So let me ask you a question. So we go to 931. Do you still want that? Do you still want that verse? Because at the beginning, we were like, man, give me that church. Give me that opportunity. Give me that body of believers. Yeah, I'd love to be a part of that. Really? Now that we reversed engineered it, do you still want it? I believe you do. But I want you to see exactly what's in the mix. That there are no great opportunities without great difficulty. It's true personally and it's true collectively. So it brings us to this take-home truth today. This singular sentence that we're going to kind of use to kind of walk away through a little some application and some more time in this verse. And that's this. That opportunity wears the clothes of difficulty. But watch this. We saw this in the reverse engineering. Every one of those, they're stitched by God's sovereignty. Nothing accidental occurred in Acts 2.41 through 9.30. God was in charge, orchestrating, ordaining, allowing. And he brought all of those to give them opportunity for the church to multiply and to continue preaching and teaching and sharing the good news that, the, that Jesus is the Christ. And so here's how we answer our question. What does opportunity wear in our lives personally and in the church life collectively? Opportunity wears the clothes of difficulty stitched by God's sovereignty for his ultimate glory and purpose. We read the verse together. Can we read our take-home truth together? Can we read the answer to our question together, would you? Opportunity wears the clothes of difficulty stitched by God's sovereignty for his ultimate glory and purpose. Now, I'm using difficulty there as a pretty general word. It could mean that what you're dealing with is, is uh, struggling relationships. Perhaps you're dealing with financial predicaments, logistical obstacles, occupational disagreements, spiritual persecution. And perhaps some of those are brought on by yourself. Perhaps they're brought on you by others. But the word difficulty is what I'm using to kind of as an umbrella term for the fact that, that, that God allows, ordains, and brings things into our life to give us opportunity for his purposes. It's true collectively. It's true individually. And other New Testament writers affirm this. Look what James would say about trials. Another word we could use for difficulties. James 1, 2 through 4. He says, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He says this, this difficulty actually has attached to it an opportunity for your own personal growth. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't exit the process too quickly, right? So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is saying here that the surest way to spiritual maturity is the way of trials. If you're asking, hey, I don't want any hard times. Don't give me difficulty. I don't want opportunity that way. What you're asking for is consistent immaturity. Here's how Paul would put it in Romans, more from a collective theological perspective. James had a very practical point of view. Here's how Romans says it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if you read in the context, you'll find out that the good is that you're being conformed to the image of God's son, 
Jesus Christ. This is what God is doing. And so he brings, allows, ordains things into our lives, just as he did in Acts 2 through uh, 9, in order to grow us, to give us opportunities. That's why I say to you, unapologetically, boldly, the very difficulty you're looking at right now is the very opportunity God has given you for growth. Let me plainly and simply illustrate this. We could all think of one from our own life, and you wouldn't need to go back very far. It, it was 2020, remember? <laughs> you could probably all think of some difficulty that actually led you to opportunity. I, I think about, no, not the political one going on, and no, not the pandemic. I think about the derecho. Our staff was huddled inside the multi-purpose room trying to hold staff meeting by a couple of phone lights. The storm passed, so then we went to see how our homes were and how our families were. And I got home, I think, not long after like noon around that time one. Fence was down. Uh, some trees had fallen on it. But ours, we didn't have much damage at all. Our neighbors had a lot more. So I went in, I changed, and Julie said, let's help our neighbors first. We'll do ours later tonight. I said, good call. So I get the chainsaw out. We used to hit the street, and so help our immediate neighbors. We know them, so we help them on each side and across the street. And what was happening was, as we were doing this, you know, people would kind of have their yard taken care of, and then they would kind of join the crew. And so we were taking like one or two to the first house, then maybe three or four to the second house, then five or six to the third house. In fact, along the way, we intersected with Sean and Jody, who lived just down the street, and they were part of a crew helping on that street. And so they joined our crew, and we just kind of had a big group of folks going house to house. We came to the last house. And across the street was a man, and he was working with his two sons, and they were sawing most of the way. And they had a lot of damage. A lot of trees were down. And he hollered over, hey, can, can we get a hand? And so we had, a, I think I had a chainsaw. Maybe there were another one there. I'm not sure. But we said, yeah, we're on our way next. We hopped over the street. We helped him. He said, man, thank you so much. He said, well, I got some strong boys, but we're just going to take us forever. And I said, man, we're glad to help. And he says, so where do you live on the street? I said, I live down there in the gray house. He goes, oh, I thought a pastor lived down there. And so, <laughs> that's what he said. And so uh, I said, well, a pastor still does live in the house. He goes, oh, who's that? I said, me. He goes, oh, you have a chainsaw? I was like, so, I don't get that, to be honest with you. Like, yeah, we actually do work. We actually are, you know, physically engaged in things. You know, I don't know what, I still, I've got wounds from that, okay, right? No, I'm kidding. So we keep talking and um, it just was a longer conversation at their houses. And so oddly enough, over the next few weeks, he shows up at church here. So I just sense the Holy Spirit saying, you know what? Um, you got to talk to him more. So one day I was out for a jog, pre-boot, and uh, uh, I'm jogging back almost home, and I see he's out in his yard working again. And, you know, I don't do everything perfect. I don't do everything right. I have my own struggles. You know that. I share a lot of those with you. But in this moment, the Holy Spirit said, stop now and talk to him. So I just stopped running, turned the AirPods off. I said, hey, Bill, what's up, buddy? We started talking, and we had probably an hour conversation and I knew the Holy Spirit was saying to me, you've got to get to the gospel. You've got to see where he is spiritually. Because that, that opportunity that came about, that difficulty, excuse me, the difficulty in the derecho had an opportunity attached. It wasn't just about clearing trees. Sean and Jody know this. That's why they were helping. There was more at stake than just trees in people's yards. Are you with me, church? And so, I mean, I was, I was sensing like, I've got to find an open door. I want to be gentle and polite, but I want to be bold and you know, I'm his neighbor, so no matter how this goes, I'm not moving, he's not moving, we're neighbors, and just thinking all these things that you think as well, I'm just a normal like you. 
So the door opened. I said, hey, Bill. And I just came in to ask him about, you know, his walk with the Lord or his relationship to Jesus and what he knew about Christ. He said, oh, I'm a believer. And he gave a strong testimony. He goes to a church in the area. I was really glad about that. So the story has no miraculous ending like you were expecting. It actually just, that's the end of the story. Except this. I realized that day, that's why we were helping him cut his trees down. To have that conversation. I don't, I'm not saying tree work isn't in the picture. It does help to meet needs. Amen? But let me ask you a question. What good would it do if you give someone clothes and food and cut their trees down and they go to hell? So I'm not minimizing helping with needs. It's often the way we actually begin to interact with people. Could the church say amen? Amen. Don't hear my heart. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But I am saying this. Sometimes that type of attitude stops just short of what really matters. And we'll take a meal. We'll do some yard work. We'll help them. Amen. And then we suddenly get timid feet. We're like, well, maybe someone else will tell him. No, why don't you tell him? And that story shows me that there was more attached to that opportunity than just trees. I'm thankful that Bill's a Christian. I'm thankful we have another believer on our street. I'm thankful nowhere, nowhere goes to church. And so we have better conversations now. I'm just showing you something. That opportunities start usually with difficulty. Now, you maybe you're saying, Todd, what is the specific opportunity that God attaches to our difficulties? I'm going to go back to our main verse. And I'm going to specifically show you what that is. And this is where I want you just to hold on to your hats. Keep your seats. Don't anybody leave. Because the specific opportunity that is in front of every difficulty relates to God's purposes and his ultimate glory. Look what it says in the text. It says that the church had peace. By the way, that was just the atmosphere. That wasn't the aim. So the church had peace. And the reason it had peace is because Saul had been, uh, uh, escaped and gone out of town. So they were like, okay, good. The, the main problem here is, out of, is gone. So at least in this initial location, there was some peace. But that wasn't the aim. The two words that tell us what the church was really aiming for is when it says that it was being built up. So there were people growing in Christ. In fact, more people were growing in Christ. Of those thousands that were now scattered, they were growing in Christ. And then it says this, walking in the fear of the Lord. When you, if you were a part of Acts 5, you'd have the fear of the Lord too, by the way. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, which if you were part of Acts 8, you would need the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You see how all this plays together? When you watch God take the lives of two people who lied to his Holy Spirit, you, you would fear God. And if you were being driven from your home, you would need the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So these two things were happening. It says it multiplied. So strengthening those in the church and then, and then reaching out to those who aren't in the church. There were those who were growing in Christ and there was more who were coming to Christ. This is the aim of the church. Internal growth and external growth. And I'm not here to cast a number. I'm not here to promote a goal. I'm here to say this. When, this is a logical conclusion. When folks in the church are growing, they're strengthening. The word there is the word we get from building a home. It comes from the Greek word oikos. That's what the word being built up means. When your personal home is being built by God, you're spiritually being constructed, it will be natural for you to tell others about it. Which the result is more folks will come to Christ because they'll hear the good news of the gospel. I'm not putting this on a timeline. I'm not saying there's a certain amount. I'm not establishing a quota. I'm simply saying to you, more people growing in Christ 
and more people knowing about Christ is always the end game of every opportunity. Otherwise, the opportunities are just horizontal. They end with us. Like, oh man, I got an easier life. Oh, I got a safer road. Oh, I got less stress. There's a place for that. The church here at peace. I'm not saying that's bad, but if that's all you're after, you're missing God's purposes and what he aims every difficulty at. He aims every difficulty at more people growing in Christ and more people knowing about Christ. Are you using your difficulties in that fashion? Are you seeing your difficulties from God's vantage point? And are you seeing that opportunity in your difficulties? Last Sunday morning, after one of our services, you know, we're available for prayer each week and Garrett and Dana Peterson walked up and said, can we, can we pray with you? And they missed Christmas Eve, so they really wanted an ornament as well for uh, Garrett's, uh, to remember Garrett's mother who passed away last year. As we're talking, you know, it was an emotional conversation. He has tears. And, and I said, Garrett, I bet coronavirus just really exacerbated how you were dealing with all that. And some of you can relate to this. You had folks die in this time and how difficult it was to manage the, the different details. I mean, I'm looking at folks now who had to deal with this. I said, Garrett, how did that exacerbate the situation? He said, man, he said, Todd, we, every day was just trying to figure out how we can, you know, uh, see her. It was a very sudden death and we're expecting it. And then when she died, figuring the details, he said, but here's what's so amazing. He said, if we'd have gone through with just a funeral, and I double-checked this week with him. This is what he told me. He said, we probably would have had 50 people attend. His mom was a believer, strong family of faith. And with tears coming out of his eyes, Garrett said, you know, but because of this difficulty we were in, 900 people viewed my mom's funeral and heard the gospel. Now, there's a man and a, and a wife, there's a family who's seeing difficulty through the eyes of opportunity. And what kind of opportunity? The kind that talks about it here in the verse, that more people are knowing about Christ. More people are growing in Christ. So let me just say to you very blatantly, hear this, and I know what I'm saying. All week I've asked myself, can I say this to our church? And with Julia in my corner, I'm saying this to our church, not knowing what's ahead. If suffering leads to more people's salvation, we welcome the suffering. If difficulty means greater gospel declaration, means greater gospel depth, then we welcome the difficulty. I don't know what's going to happen this afternoon, tonight, or tomorrow. I don't. So I, I don't say that glibly. I'm not trying to be some fantastical preacher with everything under his, you know, like under control. I don't. I've got a set of issues like you do. I'm being sanctified daily like you. But I will say to you, I want to take my posture under God's purposes. And his end game is that his church is growing in Christ to the extent that more people are knowing about Christ. And if the way to get there is suffering and difficulty, then I want as a church to say, and as a person, as a pastor, then we welcome the suffering and difficulty for the glory of God. Now I want you to hold me to that. I don't know what's going to unfold in the next two hours, the next two years, the next two decades. I don't know. But I know what God's after, don't you? People from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue hearing the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we're aiming for. 
And that's what every difficulty should be pointed towards. And there's opportunity in every difficulty to see that happen. Whether it's someone across the street or whether maybe when you got your stimulus check, you said, hey, this is a good opportunity. It was kind of tough for a few months. Look what I got, extra cash. Maybe you give more to missions now around the world. There's always opportunity in every difficulty for God's ultimate purpose and glory. As you think about this, let me just give you four, I'm not even going to call them tips. These are four pastoral exhortations that will form a roadmap for you in your current difficulty, okay? Four things that I think you should do when it comes to addressing difficulty and seeing the opportunity in it. We'll call this a recipe, can we call it that? A way forward. Some ways to put into practice what we see in Acts 9.31 and, and behind it. First of all, look through it, not at it. You see, a lot of times we stare at a difficulty and we're paralyzed. I'm encouraging you to look through it and get mobilized. Mobilized for what? God's purposes. So look and see your difficulty. Now, parents, listen very carefully to me. A lot of kids are in the room. That's awesome. I want to speak to the parents for a moment. This is where you have an incredible opportunity with your children because they're going to go through difficulties from about age two or three forward, <laughs> okay? And when they're 12 or 15 or 9 or 18, it's going to seem like one of the world's worst difficulties to them. Whatever you do, don't make light of it. Say, oh, good night. I went through that till You'll get over it. I would enter into that with them and help them spot the, the opportunity on the other side of it. I could share with you several of these situations from our kids' lives, all four of them. And yes, in our heads, we knew like this is a small thing. Actually, it'll pass. They'll be fine. But in the moment, they're not feeling that. And so I, I like the verse, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So we just tried to enter into our kids' experiences. You know what? Yeah, this is tough. Let's see what God's doing in this. And I think of the one that, that I think of right now is, this, is when Brett was a senior and uh, been playing ball at Ankin High School, became a senior, was, was kind of expecting to play. It's kind of what you do. You kind of serve your time, you know, and you get to play. And uh, he was also pretty good, short, but he's pretty good. Uh, had a good shot. And so uh, he gets, he's voted captain of the team or appointed captain. So he's captain of the Ankin High School basketball team. And a few weeks before the season started, the coach said, hey, uh, guys, I've made a decision that we're not going to play our seniors. We're actually going to play our freshmen and they were good freshmen. Brett would tell you, he said, they were equally as good as the seniors. He said, we're going to play those freshmen because I want to win a championship in the next few years. I was bummed out, I'll be honest with you. So he came home and he said, Dad, he said, Mom, I, I think I'll be sitting on the bench most of the year. And of course, I'm like you. I'm like every parent. like, well, that's not right, you know. And then Brett said, actually, Dad, it is right. He said, it's the coach's call. It's his team. And these guys aren't bad. He said, I think he should play to win a championship. That's kind of what teams do. They play to win. But yeah, that's, that's true. And so um, for most of his senior year, he would go out to the middle of the court as the captain of the team. Then you come back and he'd take a seat on the bench and he would stay there most of the game. Now, I'm not trying to embarrass him or, or me. I just tell you, that, that'd be a little embarrassing, wouldn't it? Uh, you're kind of the captain, kind of looking forward to something, but it doesn't go your way. Um, as we talked through that, I remember we were talking, and I would say to him, you know, son, there's, there's something on the other side of this that we just can't overlook. I don't know what it is yet, but you're going to have opportunities. And he said, I know, I know. And, 
And at the time, Brett would tell you this, he, he didn't really know of any strong Christians on the team. Now, I'm not saying there weren't, but at the time, he didn't really know of any. He had some good friends on the team. One was a Mormon and some other situations. Most were probably just pagans. He was friends with them. Uh, they knew he was a Christian, but he didn't know another one that was really a good Christian. And so we just kept thinking, maybe there's an opportunity here that he'll be able to um, be an example, a witness, as hard as that sounds in that moment. One game, uh, they lost. Coach was irate. And uh, folks were complaining, and the coach hit the locker. They said, hey, guys, all of you are complaining. He says, what about Brett? He said, he's our captain. He already ever plays. He's not complaining. That was the first indication that I had, and I think that he had that, okay, something bigger is happening here. At the end of the year, they uh, vote on and elect two season captains. So during the year, you're appointed a captain, and then some other guys join you each game based on, uh, I guess, maybe different factors. But there's usually three or four guys out in the center court. Brett was always one of those as a team captain. At the end of the year, they vote on season captains, and that your name then goes in the program, and it's kind of a thing that gets played, you know, like throughout the high school. It's kind of a, a thing that goes on after you graduate. So he was voted season captain as well. That's interesting, isn't it? You don't only really play that much, but you're considered a season captain. At the awards banquet, when he got his award, you know what the coach talked about? The coach did not talk about his basketball skills. The coach talked about his spiritual temperature and his character in light of the situation he went through. And the truth is, I don't think any of those guys on that team, though they all thought they were NBA players, I don't think anybody went really past like uh, community college level basketball, probably, <laughs> to be frank with you. And nobody's going to play in the NBA on that team. And so what, what came out of that was an opportunity to showcase God's work in his life in the difficult situation to where people noticed and told him. So parents, when you, when you have to face a difficulty with your child, look through it. And I say this to even our young adults here. Maybe you're not at home, but you're still young, and maybe you're single, and you're just starting out. Man, when you face difficulty, look through it. Don't just stare at it. Don't let it paralyze you. Instead, look through it and get mobilized for what God is doing in that difficulty. Secondly, I'd say this. Don't run from it. Face it. You see, difficulties are like monsters. They're, they look bigger than they really are. You know why? Because your backs to them and their shadow looks really large. So you're running from this difficulty. Ah! Right? And the shadow looks like it's about to eat you up. And if you just turn and face it and say, what am I looking at? What am I dealing with? It's probably not as big as you think. It's not near as scary as you think. Turn and face your difficulty. Call it what it is. Be thankful for it. Just voice it. I'm not asking you to, to, to adopt some kind of speak it into existence philosophy, okay? I'm actually asking you to just obey the Bible, which says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. So look through it. Don't run from it. Be thankful for it, and then remember the lesson of it. I say it in these eight words. See it, face it, voice it, and write it. Here's why I want you to write it down, because you won't remember what you learned like you think you will. We all think we have better memories than we do. So write it down somewhere. Keep it handy. Maybe you journal, maybe you don't. Maybe you just have a collection of Post-it notes. I'm not sure what your style is, okay? <laughs> but write it down somewhere on a calendar, in your phone, on notes. Uh, a few weeks ago, we were getting some things out of the attic. And uh, we, I found an old box, looked in it, and there were some notes from journaling and devotions I had and just different things I was taking uh, from 97 and 98. In fact, Emily, you remember these days that when I was a youth pastor at Grace Church, and there were some notes there from 
sermons I had preached, the message I was studying uh, to our youth there. And, and when I reread it, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember when God taught me that. I would not have remembered that if I hadn't read it. So I'm glad I wrote it down. So I just want to encourage you. Write down what you're learning in your difficulty and the opportunity you're sensing in it that God has given you for his glory and purpose. So will you say these eight words with me? See it, face it, voice it, and write it. Now watch this, church. I'm wrapping things up. I'll land the plane. I'm not saying here, okay, look at your biggest problem. Put your best foot forward. Think positive. You can do it. I'm not saying that. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying see your greatest difficulty and then ask yourself, what does God want to do with this? And then in the footsteps of Jesus, endure it, deal with it, and use it. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. I'm calling you to live like Jesus. Look at Hebrews 12 too, where it says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. What was the joy? What was the opportunity he saw in the difficulty that God would redeem a people unto himself from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue? That's the joy. He would please the Father, accomplish the Father's mission. The Father would, would purchase a people unto himself. That's a joy. That's an opportunity. And so he endured every bit of the difficulty. So I'm going to ask you to muster up some moralistic strength, you know, and pat yourself on the back and the little red train up the hill. I can make it. I can make it. You can't make it. You cannot endure your difficulty apart from Jesus. But because Jesus did, he leaves us footprints. And Peter would say we should follow in his steps. And those verses are inextricably tied to suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2. So I'm calling you, church, to follow our master and let every difficulty you encounter be seen as the opportunity it truly is. It's gonna, that opportunity is going to wear the clothes of difficulty, but God has stitched them together by his sovereignty, and he's putting that in your life so that you'll have the opportunity to make his name famous and to use that so that more people are growing in Christ and more people are knowing about Christ. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.